Welcome to TalkEerie.com's Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast. Every day, we tackle the biggest issues that the Erie, PA region faces. Stay informed and involved as we advance the narrative of Erie. Now, here's Joel Natale. Uh, uh, Trooper McGee, thanks so much for coming on to explain these crazy scams that uh, seem to be, you know, coming faster and faster and faster. Hi, Joel. Thank you for having me. All righty. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. How are you? Uh, have you transplanted into Erie? Or you kind of uh, grew up around here. How do, I don't really know how the state police system works. If uh, folks kind of get assigned from the from the statewide database or, or what? Right. Well, a lot of people don't realize that uh, I'm actually out of Troop E Franklin and Troop E consists of Erie, Crawford, Warren and Venango. But, you know, we're talking about scams and advancements of technology. Well, that's what allows me to be live with you on the air today out of Franklin. All right. Terrific. All right. So uh, what has been uh, maybe the number one generator of complaint calls to the Pennsylvania State Police regarding these tech-based or um, information technology-based scams? There are so many, and it seems like just when we've heard uh, what we think is, okay, they've, they've used this tactic, and then another one is introduced to us by way of someone making a complaint, making a call. Uh, certainly, the advancement in technology means that these criminals have greater means of contacting us, and we're all potential victims with cell phones, with the internet, with social media apps, uh, using our technology to make you know every, regular everyday purchases. Any of these things could possibly open that door. It, and it, is the is the crime usually um, uh, identity theft or? Or is it, uh, you know, actual, I don't know if the word is larceny, where, where they're basically having people buy those uh, Apple uh, Apple uh, cards or, or uh, you know, Visa gift cards or whatever. I mean, I guess you're seeing the whole broad range of different ways that people are getting, uh, getting hoodwinked, if you will. Um, Yeah, Joel. So what we probably see the most often are what you mentioned, the gift card type scams or the phone call scams in which they may just have a little piece of personal information, but it's enough to make the recipient feel that, hey, maybe this is a legitimate call. And it makes them feel that, okay, they're very assertive, they're you know, maybe they're very persuasive, and then they are then compelled to give up more information, thereby becoming a victim by believing the caller. And, and is that, you know, is that coming from social media use? I mean, I mean, when you're in a when you're in a uh, uh, you have a public picture or say of you and your nephew on Facebook and then they go and and they act like your nephew and he's locked in jail somewhere. And you, can you send so much money, but you have to do it through an Apple, uh, you know, an Apple card or what have you, a iTunes card or whatever. Is that is that a typical scenario or one of the many? Yes, that's exactly right. It seems like you you completely know what you're talking about as far as these scams that you must be you must have been made aware or you're doing your own research. That's exactly right. Um, having social media apps sometimes 
as uh, you know, helpful as it may be to help us be in contact with people, it, it, without us even realizing it, we may be sharing more information than we want to. So that's a perfect example of, you know, grandson, nephew, cousin, son, daughter, you know, if we don't have our social media apps set up to be private, and with the location service turned off, you know, there's a lot of information these scammers are able to obtain by our own digital footprint. And that, you know, that's exactly a piece that you're saying they target to us on an emotional level where, you know, grandma doesn't want to see grandson or hear that he's in trouble. And so then she believes the caller thinks it's real and then is compelled, you know, to act and send money, send a gift card, send bail whatever it is that the caller's asking for, where, of course, it's just a scam. All right. So you just brought up something there, uh, almost like a mitigation uh, of, of one of these scams. Are you suggesting that we should turn off location, location services or how should well, we do that? There- well, it certainly is a one way there, you know, there's different things that we can do, but that's one way that we could possibly create more security within our own social media apps. Uh, also, not just friending people or following people who we don't really know personally, make sure that your actual audience is who you intended to be. Oh, that's that's huge there. Um, and again, you're saying location services on the social media apps. If you need to use it for your GPS, for your Google Maps, that's that's a whole different story, right? Oh, yeah. Correct. That's different. Okay. What about these brute forces, these crazy voicemails? And, and, and boy, am I getting that from my friends, from my wife, where I got six calls today about uh, my Social Security number being used for criminal activity. And, and they're such a farce because it's a computerized voice or whatever, but they put this, the living um, scare in you, and, and people right. just believe anything. Talk about that, Trooper. Sure. Well, the callers are definitely, they're going to use different tactics. One could be uh, persuasive and quite assertive, uh, even aggressive, uh, because they're trying to make that intended victim act. And, you know, you're not the only person that they're calling. And so they're probably finding or have found over the years in in using these tactics that uh, force, as you're saying, verbal force gets people to react, gets people compelled to, oh, oh no, I have to do something. I don't want this to happen. And, you know, that, that tactic is a scare tactic, but sadly it must be working to their advantage because they continue to use it. So, you know, it's just the best practice is if, if you're not expecting a phone call from anyone, and even if you are, you know, you can always ask for a callback number, do some type of verification to know who it is that's uh, calling you, and certainly do not give up any of that personal information. Talk about some of the cases that have come in front of Troop E that that you guys have been uh, basically uh, issuing public information, um, you know, releases on. Uh, some of there's been some pretty large cases of some uh, people, unfortunately, having a lot of money stolen. Yes, that's correct. I mean, we've seen unemployment scams, uh, crisis-based scams where, you know, they're compelling people to donate because of a certain crisis that's taken place. Uh, We've seen 
Again, we've mentioned bail for family members, the prizes and gift cards. Uh, I always like to tell people you can't win a prize for a contest or a raffle you haven't entered. And if you know, this all should be also should be a red flag. If you have to purchase a gift card to claim a prize, that doesn't sound too legitimate. You know, um, the hostage phone scam, that was another one where, you know, they had a family member's name and said, hey, we have this person and we won't release them unless you do, you know, whatever their you know, directives were. Uh, again, playing to the emotions IRS, social security, and utility scams. I mean, there's quite a list. Most recently, we did just have calls for what's called spoofing, in which caller ID shows a legitimate phone number. And interestingly, because of our timing here with today's call, it was coming from Meadville Police and Meadville State Police and saying that, hey, this is the Meadville State Police and you have to pay X amount uh, to, you know, for the release of a family member. And what spoofing is, it makes it appear as if it actually is coming from the police station. And how is the average Joe going to decipher whether that's real or fake? Well, exactly. And so, you know, we just like to put out news releases and remind people that we will never call for that. Uh, reason, you know, if, if we're making a phone call to a family member, it's certainly not going to be to collect money. It's just going to be, you know, an informative type phone call. So any type of phone call such as that, where you're being asked to give personal information, money, wire money, transfer money, buy gift cards, certainly you can, you know, hang up. It's a scam, and we do then would would take a report in the event someone is victimized or does suffer financial loss. We're talking to Pennsylvania State Trooper Michelle McKee. Uh, uh, Trooper, uh, let's talk about email ransomware. Again, we have some business owners that listen to the show. Um, Do you guys get involved with that, or do you usually refer that to the FBI because it's usually interstate commerce uh, violations? Yeah, that's correct. That would be something that we wouldn't really have uh, as many resources to follow up with. But I do like to make the reference to the Internet Crime Complaint Center, which is ic3.gov. And that allows anyone to go on this website and make a complaint. It's then logged and tracked by the FBI. So again, that's the Internet Crime Complaint Center, or ic3.gov. Alrighty, the um, you know as as far as other best practices, uh, um, Bluetooth, this whole thing with uh, your um, your cards with the chip now. Uh, can you talk a bit about like identity theft and, and some of the some of the things that we can guard against uh, from getting our credit card stolen and so on? Sure. So anytime we're making a point of sale purchase, it's probably better to use a more protected credit card as opposed to your debit card. Uh, For the reason being that there's a little bit added protection if you're using a credit card as opposed to directly withdrawing money from your checking account. Uh, uh, Sometimes point of sale, if you picture, you know, a gas station where it's open to anybody. These there's skimmers, and people are then able to. Um, it's just like a small piece that outfits across top of the uh, 
you know, the, where we put our card in to slide for the point of sale and they're able to clone the card. And it's unbelievable the type of tactics that they're able to use, but that is occurring. So without you even losing possession of your debit or credit card, it has then been cloned into this little chip that's, you know, magnetically traced your phone number or your credit card number. And then they can just clone it and create another one using your information at a completely different location. So that is another type of thing that we do see. So it's just really important to, again, have this awareness, realize some of the tactics that are being used, um, keeping track of our credit card bills, our bank statements, knowing that you have you know, that option to obtain your free credit report once a year through the three uh, main you know, credit companies and just really monitoring all of your activity for, to make sure it's legitimate. All righty. Uh, la- last question for Trooper Michelle McGee. Uh, what about the holidays? Uh, anything that we should be starting to prepare for as we start thinking about shopping? Of course, there's uh, package theft because so many people are using Amazon and Walmart and Target because of COVID, uh, you know, is that is that all still kind of peaking these days? The the kind of the 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 package pirates, the porch pirates. <laughs> so you know, certainly with the holidays coming, the thieves are out there. They know that you know there's going to be increase in traffic as far as packages coming on our porches. Uh, if you if you realize that you're not going to be home, maybe make an arrangement for some. Uh, you know, trusted family member to get that for you. You know, Jewel, we even see smash and grab type things where you go shopping, you have shopping bags in the back seat of your car, you come back out and they're gone, right? That's so, crazy. you know, I we like to tell people secure those types of, you know, the packages in the trunk where they're out of sight. And same with, you know, anything of value, laptops and purses and wallets. You want to, if you have them in your vehicle, keep them out of sight, because smash and grab, you know, as old fashioned as that might be, that's also still occurring. So certainly with the holidays, we see an increase in all of that. Not not to mention uh, the, uh, you know, it, it's an expensive venture just to get that window uh, replaced and so on. Oh, my Abs- gosh. Absolutely. Because I mean, that deductible is going to be upon you. Well, we really, really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, um, is there any you know any way to fight back from getting these spam calls is are, i mean do you recommend some of these apps that uh won't ring your phone if they don't know the number or or are those you know potentially have uh spamming abilities to them as well right it's kind of hard to know exactly you know what's legitimate out there i you know i do recommend there's a do not call number that you can um register a phone number. It's an opt-out service. Uh, I can give you that number if you would like. Sure. But there's a, it's a 1-888-567-8688. And that's 888-567-8688. That's a do not call opt-out service. You can register your phone number on that. Okay. Yeah, we'll put that up on our Facebook. Thank you so much, uh, State Trooper Michelle McKee. Uh, and uh, we appreciate uh, all the, the efforts that you guys do to keep us informed uh, uh, from Troop E. And our focus today, our 
big issue that we're dealing with is the criminal justice system and uh, the folks that uh, that you know work their hearts and souls uh, to keep us safe and to uh, uh, make sure that we live in a just society and a fair society. And one of those uh, all-around heroes is Judge Marshall Piccinini of the Erie County Court of Common Pleas. Uh, Marshall, so glad to have you on with us here, sir. Joel, thank you. Thanks for the invitation to come in and talk about the law. Happy, happy to do so. All righty. You know, uh, we had you on. It's been probably over a year now um, to uh, to talk about Unified Erie and that anti-violence uh, initiative. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I want you to remind folks how you kind of came up, you know, uh, you know, your origin story. What drew you to the law? Sure. Well, Joel and I, when I was in college, I uh, decided to join the Army. And in my junior year, I took a course on the administrative administration of law at Washington Jefferson College. And from that point on, I knew becoming a lawyer was something that I wanted to do. And the the, uh, the Army allowed me to go to law school so that I could become an Army lawyer. And I've been practicing law for now 30 years. Were you ROTC at WNJ? Yeah, okay. I did. My freshman year, uh, it wasn't the path that I was on. I ended up deciding very early on that I wanted to join the military. And I got a scholarship for the remainder of my time in college and then went to law school. It wasn't something that was on my mind. I thought I was just going to go on active duty. And uh, it was a great, great start to my legal career. And for me, it was just a, a privilege to serve in that capacity all those years ago. Does the Army have a law school or did you go to a regular law school? Well, you'd go to a regular law school, and once you're done, you, and if you're accepted into the Army Judge Advocate General Corps, the Army has a, a lengthier period of legal training at the University of Virginia. So the Army Law School is there on the campus of UVA. Yeah. And after graduating from law school and passing the bar, you spend another three months in the Army Law School before you actually head off to your active duty location. All right. So everyone – wants to know this is the jag just like on tv you know like ncrs or whatever NCS, yes, was, ncsi I right i was regularly piloting jets and <laughs> solving world problems <laughs> it, was a, it was a great way to start my career as a lawyer uh for me joel it happened at a time when within several months of being on active duty the first gulf war started and i happened to be a legal assistance oh. attorney and i learned really quickly uh the, the concerns with, with deployment and, and young soldiers really at the time being concerned whether they'd come back alive. So I spent the very beginning of my career uh, actively working with families to get them ready for deployment that you know we hadn't seen in, in decades before then. And unfortunately, it's now a pretty regular occurrence, as you know. So you're, you're basically – you started your, your career playing defense. You were, you were a defendant attorney. No, actually, when I started out in the Army, I was a legal assistance attorney. Okay. And after the at the end of the Gulf War, they asked me to become a trial counsel, and then I became a prosecutor there from the beginning. And I had two roles. I was an Army prosecutor, so some days I'd wear a uniform, and some days I was a special assistant United States attorney. And on those days, I would prosecute civilians who committed crimes on the Fort Riley military base. Oh, my goodness. Okay. All right. So, uh, so let's fast forward. And of of course, uh, you're you're known as the prosecutor that brought uh, Marjorie Deal Armstrong to justice. Um, is that does that rank as maybe the 
the biggest deal, the biggest case that you ever prosecuted? Uh, I, I think publicity-wise it does, uh, Joel. For me, uh, you know, in the midst of the investigation of that case, the rest of our prosecutions went on. And during that time frame, there were a lot of really large cases that I prosecuted, but there's nothing that compares just from the notoriety or the publicity associated with it. But as a prosecutor, you look at every case as a case, and it was a case that needed to be solved and, and then actually proved in court. And that's kind of the hard work that we did working with the FBI and the ATF all those years and glad that it ended up uh, um, prevailing and justice being served in that case. Did March call you a lot too? Like he, she called the, she, she called the uh, Jerry a, and she called me a few things. Right? <laughs> she called me a lot of names over the years. But yes, I didn't have the the privilege as Jerry did or Ed did to talk with her on a on a daily basis. Oh my gosh! All right, so uh, moving forward, you know, as a federal prosecutor, what was the biggest leap for you to go from prosecutor to judge? Um, for me, it was actually now no longer being an advocate, you know, being able to sit back and not being the person presenting a case, but actually being the person who needed to listen to both sides. And uh, the transition was was really quick. I've been in the courtroom pretty much from the first day I put on the robe and uh, and I've enjoyed it. For me, going from a prosecutor to this role um, was a natural transition because what people don't realize about prosecutors is their job is not to win cases. It's to do justice and unique from other lawyers. I had the opportunity if I didn't think that justice was served by a case, uh, the case shouldn't be prosecuted. So I had that, I was armed with that. And then I had 30 years in the courtroom to to prep for it. Um, But that was the biggest thing to be the person listening, not the person advocating. So, uh, you know, we're in some, unprecedented times here right now um just on this massive global level because you've seen it at a lot of different levels do you feel that the u.s judicial system is fundamentally fair to everyone joe i I take a different approach to this topic than a lot of the things i hear in the community and here's why because i lived in that system uh for for almost 30 years And I believe uh, that the Constitution of the United States, and I believe uh, firmly in the way, at least in which I practiced my job, that I I believe that it is a fair system. Uh, Are there cases where uh, unfairness seems uh, to have prevailed? Uh, I think there are examples of that. But the system is built to protect all the citizens uh, in in an equal way. And, And I... One of the things that, that I look at, even when I'm doing cases on the bench now, is, you know, are people being equally protected under the law? And, and I committed to that in the justice system as I commit to it now as a judge. Is, and, and I understand yeah. the talk about the topic. Yeah, well, and, and I want to go a little bit deeper because, you know, again, there, there's a lot of talk about uh, racial in, in, inequities and racial injustice. But isn't it almost... Uh, more about uh, socioeconomic in, um, differences. Again, if I can hire, you, you know, uh, let's just, I, and I, I don't mean to use a slur, but let's say I can hire the Philadelphia lawyer, do I get better outcomes in the judicial system or no? Um, well, first, since I'm now seated as a judge, 
as we talked before I came on. Yeah. And I'm always very cautious as a judge to make sure that it's, I'm happy to speak publicly. I think judges are in a unique position to talk about the law. Sure. But I can't do anything that might question my impartiality or would suggest in any way how I would rule in a case. Yeah. Uh, but that said, I mean, because of my background and my being on the bench now for about 14 months, um, I understand the, the, the claims or the realities associated with those suggestions, um, but I don't think you're actually getting to the root issue. Okay. The root issue is the socioeconomic issues that result in the level of lawyering that might come into the courtroom. I think you're on to something, Joel, that it's much more uh, fundamental than that. It's the, it's, it is those, those root causes, those socioeconomic issues that might lead someone on a path that might cause them to be in the criminal justice system. And that's where I think as a society, we could do better in resolving those issues. Yeah. And I want on the core. Yeah. On on the core, um, uh, kind of the, the leading indicators that would cause somebody to even be involved in the criminal justice system is what you're saying. Kind of the base societal ills, if you will. Yes. And Joe, I see I do see it in the courtroom without talking about cases. I you see so many cases and I've had the opportunity, although I'm in the family division, to do a lot of criminal uh, work as well uh, over the last um, 14 months. More than 163 guilty pleas and almost 70 sentencing hearings. And so when you have those cases come in front of you and you hear about folks backgrounds, sometimes you have to look. And I saw this in my career as a prosecutor. You you really wonder um, why did things turn out for this person and what things were in that person's life that another person didn't have as advantages in their life that moved them in the direction. And I think those are really serious concerns for us all uh, to understand. Yeah. Just a little aside uh, years ago, uh, it's got to be um, basically 20 years ago. I had the opportunity with a, uh, a worship band to, uh, to lead a service at uh, SCI Albion, and you know we had a packed house, Marshall. And I looked out there, and I said I could run into any one of these guys on the street. They might be bankers, they could be lawyers, they could be you know professionals, they could be ser- you know service uh, you know doing service industries and so on. But here they are incarcerated. You know, there's like there there's no look to a criminal, is there? No, there, there really isn't. And, you know, you know, I firmly believe that that every person, um, no, no matter their, their background or how they found their way into the courtroom, uh, can be redeemed. And we could have a whole nother discussion. Uh, I'd love to another day about about prison reform and prison reentry, really, about the steps that society needs to take to have those people who, if they were justly sentenced and appropriately sentenced and they're done serving their time, how they can turn their lives around. And uh, those are some of the most impactful experiences. Um, A a friend I met in federal prison actually was uh, granted a pardon on national television a couple of weeks ago by President Trump. And I met him at FCI McCain years ago, and he was part of a group of men. He had already been released and was doing great work on the outside, but a group of men who had completely and without a doubt turned their lives around while in prison, and I've got uh, someday we'll talk about all those details. But um, but another example of where the system can work if done properly. 
in uh, Erie County, Unified Erie, the anti-violence initiative. And uh, Marshall, I know it's it's not a part so much uh, of your Ballywick these days, but it's super important work. Can you give us an update uh, from what from your perspective of where Unified Erie is? And I think it's been kind of it, it's been kind of uh, hoodwinked by COVID, hasn't it? A little bit. Well, first of all, I, I, I actually don't know the answers to a lot of those questions. I, I figured you'd ask me something about it, so I did reach out to Amy Eisert. And since I've been on the bench, uh, any of those activities have not been things that I've been kept up on or engaged in because I was doing a good bit of criminal cases and will continue to do so. So I'd hate for there to be any suggestion that I'm actively in any way involved in enforcement, but, but I'm happy to talk to the topic. I, I even as a judge, uh, I've had made referrals to aspects of what I knew to be Unified Erie. And I think across the community, even still today, people uh, suggest information about this initiative that is just not accurate. And mm. and the truth of the matter is there are three prongs to the this problem-solving initiative that a whole team, I was just part of a team that helped create. And those three prongs were um, prevention, uh, re-entry and enforcement. And we tried to do much like what we just discussed in your earlier segment about getting to the root causes of why folks are engaging, not just in criminal activity, but problem behaviors and try and get the kids so they don't turn in that path. And there's, there's, there was nothing but very laudable things about it. And I think some, some good impacts from it. On the re-entry side, I got the update from Amy that the ECRSSA is fully staffed with case managers and continues to do great reentry work, connecting, we call them transitioning clients, folks who left prison with the jobs and help they need so they don't go back to prison, which is great for society. And then on the enforcement arm, it's my understanding that uh, what were significant successes uh, beyond what anyone's expectations would have been. Uh, that the work in that regard, the studying the data and moving forward has continued. It seems like maybe there's been a delay from a COVID standpoint, uh, but my understanding from uh, what's what I've been, was just told just recently is that that work is continuing and will likely be uh, re-engaging. Uh, it's the kind of thing that's working to make sure that anytime there are spikes in any of those areas, I think the goal is to be smarter about how uh, law enforcement used its tools to engage in enforcement. Again, an area that I'm no longer practicing yeah. in, but that was the original notion of it, and I don't think it stopped. Well, and again, just from any casual ob- observation, certainly the amount of uh, network-related violence has decreased significantly in Erie, Pennsylvania. I think in the beginning, again, and I don't want to comment about uh, any current cases or anything associated with it, but the history of this from a data standpoint was very rapidly and very drastically seeing a an absolutely uh, a complete drop and an actual end to what was at the time gang-related homicides uh, and substantial numbers of the reduction of shootings. You know, remember just hearing the families who just didn't want to go out at night and they're afraid for their kids because there were so many shots fired in the law enforcement team uh, had done significant work with the data folks uh, to reduce those numbers. Uh, I don't, I don't 
Uh, I'm not involved in whether or not those things are what they are today, but that was the nature of that uh, that approach to solving that problem. You deal with a lot of cops on a day-to-day basis, uh, police officers. Um, they're under they're under a lot of stress right now. Uh, Anything you want to share from your point of view that way? And again, uh, again, they they have to uh, present proper evidence in front of of a judge for, for to make that decision or whatever, or, you know, in front of a jury. But uh, a lot of stressors in in all of the j- criminal justice system. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I probably won't speak to those other issues because I could have police officers in front of me sure. where I have to evaluate my own sense of their credibility, and I leave that on a case-by-case basis when hearing them in court. You know, societally, as a judge, I still live in the community. Um, I I understand uh, uh, those pressures. I I came into being a judge. There was no uh, hesitation or or lack of knowledge about it that I was a law enforcement person. Um, I certainly have my views on things that, that don't find their way into the courtroom or the decisions that I make. Um, what I like to see is a society where everyone is treated uh, fairly and and that not everyone is painted with the same brush, no matter who they are. And we look more closely at how uh, both police officers and members of the community uh, are viewed. People should be viewed on their individual merit. Yeah. Do you do you feel that uh, we're at a place where um, we we just you know, we just continue to kind of drop sides that there, that there, that there are these cohorts or these. Um, I don't know. It it, it, ju- it just seems like everything has become political. Everything has become um, with a higher uh, temperature, if you will. And we, you know, I had Brian Kelly on with me yesterday, and we talked about how, uh, you know, uh, you know, as a people of faith, you know, it's our job to be peace bringers, you know, and, uh, you know, they even, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling, but you, you, I think you kind of get what I'm getting at, you know, of, of how do we bring yeah, the I temperature think, down and come together as, as a society and community? Well, I think, Joel, this is what I've learned in the last 14 months as a judge, that, that uh, the court and the law and the Constitution of the United States ought to ought to be held up as the the means by which people are protected. Uh, The the Constitution is a beautiful thing that that provides for the equal protection of the law uh, for all people who are created equal. And I and I I wish we were at a point where uh, people would would turn to that no matter who they are. They're protected by those things. And the polarization, though, is obvious. Everyone knows that we are so polarized in so many areas. For me, it just it hurts the public discourse when people don't treat other people with the love and respect uh, that that I, I attempt uh, to treat everyone that walks into my courtroom uh, with respect. And I, it's very clear to my staff that when they walk into my courtroom, regardless of what they did or why they're there or how what their demeanor is, that day is the most important day for them. And, you know, we need to treat people with that level of of love and respect that that again it's deeply rooted in, in our in our faith and and i i tried to practice that way not only in my life but in my former law practice uh, and now on the bench as well it, it it really it really allows you to have the courtroom kind of being um i don't 
I don't know if safe place is the proper word, but saying, hey, this is where we lift up the Constitution and the rights of the individual, um, uh, even as we uh, execute justice. Yeah, and that's what the court system is all about. It is, it's resolving conflict. I, I tell folks in the family law area all the time that, listen, our preference is that you work out these differences on your own. It's best for your families. Uh, but when you walk into this courtroom, if you're not able to resolve those real differences, then the judge is to be the arbiter of those differences and fairly hear from both sides and to do what's best and what's right. We're talking to uh, Judge Marshall Piccinini. He's on the Erie County Court of Common Pleas, 14 months on the bench. And how many how many cases did you say? Like 150? My, or- my, my, my staff's been doing a great job keeping just so we wanted to really have benchmarks. How did we know what we were doing? And yeah. so they, each day since the day one I've been in and over those 14 months, even though I'm limited in criminal areas, haven't done really many this year. 163 guilty pleas, 63 sentencing proceedings, 100 temporary and 85 final protection from abuse hearings, wow. uh, 80 indirect criminal contempt bench trials. And, and this is just an example of how busy this bench is. And I'm so impressed with the judges, the nine judges that are here, all the work that they did when they were shorthanded. Yes. Uh, and that's just a just a sum of it. 60 custody trials, 84 custody contempt hearings. You know, now that uh, you're on the bench, you're seeing a diversity of cases, a lot in the, in family law. Let's first off ex- explain what family law kind of entails, and then we could talk about some of the things that people deal with. Maybe, uh, you know, what 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 brings it uh, to bear, and how people can maybe um, better, you know, navigate uh, the law that way. Yeah. So when I came on the bench, I think people thought the natural thing that I would be doing primarily was criminal. And yeah. and frankly, I didn't want that to be the case. I was I was glad to be assigned by President Judge Trusilla into the family division. We're closely with Joe Walsh, who runs that division. And in the family division, we're really talking about all family related matters, child custody, child support. And in that realm as well, our juvenile delinquency cases and our dependency or child protection cases. Uh, and, and as well, our protection from abuse uh, arena as well. So it's a broad swatch within family law. And these are all areas where I didn't practice as a lawyer over 30 years. And I really wanted to jump in quick to try and learn as much as I can. And I've, I've, I've learned so much uh, and have such a, such a higher level of respect, not only for this area of the law, but for the good uh, that you can do in people's lives and how deeply hurting uh, families are in this community. Yeah, once once they come to well, every well, first off, everybody has to come right in a in a divorce proceeding or in a custody situation, or can they avoid court? Yes, and in fact, uh, Joe, I, I encourage them to avoid court because what you really want families to get to is a point where, after the dissolution of the relationship, you know, a lot of sad reasons for that to happen. Uh, it's best for their kids, for them to model for their kids how to resolve conflict. And so I encourage people not to come to court. Um, and yes, they can mutually agree to custody orders. Uh, the Domestic Relations Office has a great program for tra- attempting to conciliate those resolutions. And only when they're not able to do so do they end up upstairs here in court uh, to have custody trials. And uh, again, it's even when they're ready for court, I still encourage them 
to do what's best for their kids. And often that is to come to some sort of an agreement uh, that they know is best for their kids without me, a perfect stranger, resolving those things for them. But I'm happy to do it if they can. Is there a percentage of uh, cases that would come in front of you as a, as a family court judge? Is it like 5% or is it is it much higher than that? You know, I don't know. I think on any given custody trial term now, I have 20 custody trials scheduled uh, that we just finished and coming up in November. So, you know, that's 20 for me, probably 20 across the other judges. So uh, 60 cases probably in a term, uh, wow. you know, averaging. And that's a lot of trials to do, but I don't know the total number from domestic relations. It's substantially higher than that. Because again, these are the cases that are not able to be resolved. I mean, by the I mean, just as again, as a, as a lay observer, that's a lot of broken families. Yeah, it really is, Joel. And um, and when you hear their their cases and you see the way they interact, I think you recognize, you know, the deep hurt in these families and why uh, things were broken. And here you are in the middle, attempting to resolve things where the children are in the middle. And just do your best to do what's in the best interest of those children. And there's a good structure in Pennsylvania law to conduct that analysis, which I use in the custody. We all use in the custody trials. And so, um, yeah, a lot of hurting families, but a lot of good that can come if you can get the parties to understand why you've decided what you've decided or to get them to come to terms with what's best for their kids. Do you ever assume kind of a counseling role or, you know, uh I mean, how does how does that how do you navigate that as a judge? Well, I, I think it's a little bit different in the custody realm than it's in your other civil cases or criminal cases, because there is that opportunity when you conduct this analysis of these 16 sentencing factors. And I do all of mine on the record, uh, not in writing. And I do them in the presence of the parties out of respect for them. I want them to leave my courtroom understanding not only what I decided, but why I decided it. And so when you go through those factors, related to the varying ways in which they've parented and how they get along and those things, you you really do talk to them because you want them to leave the courtroom, not just with a custody order, but with one some recognition that a third party neutral person uh, has weighed in on this and has given them some some guidance or some structure for making things better for their kids. Is there is there one thing that you wish uh, some you know, a couple that is going to, you know, they're 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 have irreconcilable differences. They're going to, um, you know, dissolve the marriage. But is there something that you wish that they could kind of understand at the beginning of that process that would make life a lot easier for those kids? Uh, it's, it's so hard to, to. You'll know it logically. You and I will. But when you're in the midst of that thing, it's hard to tell them those things. So uh, what I try to do is to get them to, to at least see one thing, that it's not about winning. Uh, I understand the problem that you had uh, coming into the courtroom, but this isn't about winning a case. It's about what's in the best interest of your kids. And I try to get them to they already love their kids in, in almost all of these cases on both sides. But that tension in their relationship has been so vast that it's hard to uh, to move past that. Let's pivot to the juvenile courts. Um, uh, again, isn't the idea of the juvenile jurisprudence to redeem that uh, young person to to uh, society and you know being gainfully employed and kind of making it? 
Yeah, Jill, the whole, and I may have, before I became a judge, I may have had the wrong perspective on it. Juvenile court is not mini adult court. Uh, our juvenile court justice system in Pennsylvania is based on balanced and restorative justice. And really there's three things that we really look at. We look at the child, the juvenile that's in court, the victim uh, in those cases where there are victims of the acts that they engaged in and the community, but we're really looking at restoring that child. These are kids. And if you think there are some really serious acts that some of the juveniles have engaged in, but I look at it from a family perspective. Uh, how many of us who have raised kids or are raising kids now, their kids have done something something stupid, something that may have been a violation of the law or an act of delinquency? Don't you want a system that's actually going to turn them around, uh, surround them with the things they need, certainly make them accountable for their actions, but give them a chance to not have their life stifled because of a bad thing or a stupid thing they did as a kid. And so I think that's what balanced and restorative justice is all about. Making victims whole, but restoring the kid to a point where he doesn't just end up in the adult system. Do do um, our juvie, you know, juvie hall, you know, the uh, you know, we're, we're you know, the the different places where they might get placement. Are they adequate to the task? Well, it's interesting. It's not an area that I knew a lot about, but I'm I've been very impressed, Joel, about the when. Um, when the disposition of a case results in a child being placed in one of those uh, placements, very impressed with the amount of work that's being done in those places. I had, I had one recent where the kid was so excited to come in and give me the workbook. And it was about two inches thick of all of the programming that he had completed. Uh, and he wanted to make sure that I, I saw that before I came out uh, on the bench. And so I do see that. I think there are, there are ways that the system can be improved. Um, there are a lot of trouble kids who are in that system, uh, but there's a lot of good work being done, you know, from the referrals that are being made by the court. And then inside those systems, again, it's a restorative justice system. We're trying to get the kids to the point where they are redeemed from whatever they've done in their past and they can turn their lives around. And uh, it's been a joy being part of that process. You're still going to be uh, firm, uh, fair, but firm. And this is not about them not being accountable. It's absolutely about them being accountable, but it's with an eye towards them turning this around quickly. How much, how much of um, criminal behavior is prompted by mental illness? Well, I've seen this throughout my career, uh, not only on the bench, but even on the bench. I think that there's co-occurring issues here. It's not just the mental illness, uh, but then the things that folks turn to to, to self-medicate in the mental illness, which then turn into issues related to substance use disorders. And I think it's a combination. Uh, it's not all of the cases, but but you know, to, to not respect the law and to engage in that act, there's something going on that causes a, an otherwise law-abiding person to do that. And, and a good number of those cases, I couldn't give you a percentage, yeah. are clearly in some way mental health, anxiety, or other mental health issue related along with other things in someone's life. What kind of, um, I don't know if we have that figured out, that part of it figured out, Marshall, as far as, you know, really having the comprehensive, um, uh, you know, programming for, uh, for those that are mentally ill and, and do criminal behavior. 
Well, the system is meant to to address those things, whether it's uh, being done perfectly, you know, certainly is up for discussion. But I think, you know, across the country, you see those things that are clearly uh, oftentimes mass crimes of violence that are, are likely at their root uh, a mental health issue. And, and um, you know, we've changed the mental health system over the last uh, 50 years to the point where folks who are otherwise, and I'm not saying this was a better system, who are otherwise in some sort of mental health uh, placement uh, were then no longer in those and are now folks who are out on in the community and, and we want to be a community that actually serves them. Yeah, and again, you don't have to comment at this, but uh, when I've had uh, uh, Dr. Clark on and, and, and Ed Palatella, you know, they would talk about Marjor- Marjorie Deal Armstrong's mental health, mental illness and but they would say, you know, not every every person with bipolar disorder kills five men, you know, in their lifetime. And so, you know, I mean, there is, not not every mental illness leads to, you know, homicide. Well, and not every mental illness really is is in any way an excuse, nor is it a mitigating factor necessarily. Sometimes, mm. you especially when you add violence to the mix, it becomes. And Marjorie was a good example of that I think one of the most intriguing legal aspects of that case were the multiple mental health hearings where where the government, I disagreed with their prior diagnosis from 30 years ago, and in the end uh, prevailed that this was more a, a characterological personality disorder that was that better explained uh, her involvement in uh, what would have been uh, multiple deaths. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about dependency. That's the third uh, area that you work on in family law, Marshall Piccinini. Um Talk about that. What is that all about? And uh, what what kind of cases that are you seeing? And how can people you know work through that? Yeah, and again, at the beginning of the year, when I took on juvenile cases, was privileged to actually be assigned to those. I took on dependency cases, and dependency cases in the family division. We're really talking about child protection. Uh, taking steps where children have been subject to abuse or neglect and taking steps with with judicial uh, oversight and, and active involvement to make sure that the kids are kids are safe. You know, in my DA's office days here in Erie County, I spent a long time uh, as uh, the, the child abuse prosecutor. And so I knew things from that perspective and knew how difficult it was. But now in the dependency realm, you know, I see these kids that have been subject to abuse and neglect and the families that they've come from and some really just heart-wrenching stories of um, what they've gone through and the steps that we take within the system uh, to get them uh, what we refer to as timely permanency. We want them to be able to either be restored to their families if that's appropriate or in a timely way, get these kids some permanency in their lives so that they have a hope for a future. And uh, the, you know, as as far as figuring the, all that out, um, do we have do we have a foster care system that's up to the challenge, or is that is that one of our weak links? Well, Joe, I, I don't know. I've done any study of it uh, yeah. beyond what I see in the courtroom, but but I have to tell you that in my experience, and this is with referrals from the Office of Children and Youth, although there are some uh, bad instances, uh, if not for a healthy foster care system, some of these kids would have no place to go. And a lot of those foster 
foster families are also pre-adoptive sources for these kids. And I've, I've marveled at some of these homes where kids who were, because of abuse and neglect, uh, just really didn't see a lot of hope in their lives. But then because of loving either kinship care, family members who brought them in, or people in the foster system uh, loved them and supported them and all those diagnoses and things that used to be existing in their lives, they're now happy and they're healthy. And when if the matter goes to the point of a termination of parental rights and into adoption, a lot of those foster families are adopting these kids. So I see a lot of positive in it. And that's not to say that, that there can't be improvements. And if folks are interested in fostering children, I see the faces in the courtroom of the families who who love these children and have, uh, have taken on that commitment, a huge commitment. Some who've already raised their families, deciding that they wanted to kind of give back and, and do it again. And so I've seen it as a positive. Um, is there are there enough foster parents? I mean, is there are enough people available to take up those tasks? I I think that the system could always use yeah. positive, loving foster families, and I, I don't know who to connect them with, but uh, uh, they can contact the Office of Children and Youth and and volunteer, and it's just such a loving way for folks to help kids turn things around if they're not able to go back to their to their family of origin. Do you see a bridge or a link between your work in the family court and some of the work that you're having to do in criminal court? I mean, uh, sometimes the outcomes don't work out, do they, Marshall? Uh, I've really seen it uh, in, in ways that it, before I was a judge, I, I I didn't really think much of. And I had it happen in court uh, sometime over the last few months. And in an instance where uh, an individual had engaged in some violations of the law, and I anticipated that the root cause of those issues, because you could actually see in the person's history a change at a certain date where, where schoolwork was not being accomplished, and then they were getting in trouble. And I assumed that it was all drug use. And when it came down to it, it really was that moment when their parents separated wow. and then divorced. And then I was in that midst, I was like, wow, this all started in a in a dissolved family. And then for all the reasons for that child not being equipped and and cared for, or at least not feeling loved, turned in other areas. And then it turned to activity that violated the law. So and that's just one example for me and, and just really eye opening all of these things uh, in, in the in the justice system are are connected. And I think, uh, you know, I'm just speaking for myself, but I think uh, my colleagues on the bench likely agree that we de- do see so much crossover in all these areas. And it comes down to the core of, of getting to the root causes of what's going on in people's lives and trying to turn those things around. Yeah. And, and again, by the time it gets to you, um, you know, it's it's pretty binary. There, there's not a lot of gray area. That's where like Having veterans court comes in or uh, wh- what's the one for addicts is uh, isn't there a treatment court. treatment court? Right. Uh, those are pretty helpful parts of the of the system these days. Very much so. And I think even I think the courts are great. Uh, Judge Walsh does an amazing job in veterans court and Judge Mead uh, in the treatment court area, arena and Judge Cunningham before him. And those are great opportunities for people with uh 
substance use disorders or other things that might be attributed to their veteran service to really dig more deeply. Again, what are the root causes? Not just did you commit a crime, but why did you do so? And what can we do to make sure from a society standpoint that you don't do it again? Um, again, there's always a punitive aspect to all this. Uh, for the victims of crimes, they, they do want some sort of retribution or some sort of sense of justice in that realm. But that's not all that people want. They want folks to come out of prison or whatever setting they're in to be to be better, not do it again. What are you looking forward to in your second year on the bench? Um, well, I love kind of the, the, the breadth that the, the court has given me the opportunity to engage in a little bit of everything. Um, I enjoy doing some of the civil work that I've been doing. I hope some of that will increase. And, you know, we, we just set our schedules a year in advance. So I'm looking forward to, I've got so much to learn. I'm still new at this. Uh, and I've learned so much from the other judges and it's, I want to be as prepared as I can every day. I walk into the courtroom, uh, and I just love the law. And so I love doing these things. And it's exciting to learn different things in different areas of the law every day. Every day is different. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad and honored to have been appointed to do this for the last 14 months. Give uh, as Last word, give some advice or some encouragement to those that might be, you know, might be in doubt that uh, that our society is a fair one. Uh, Joel, in my in my life experience, uh, I, I think folks need to start more closely engaging in relationships with other people around them who they don't otherwise know, and then engage the system, not not oppose the system, uh, and engage. And again, I, I, I had a talk yesterday. Blanket yourselves in the Constitution and the law, and uh, and in the judicial system where our job is to treat people fairly when you walk into our courtroom and to do and to, to dispense appropriate justice. Uh, I've lived in this system for 30 years. Uh, I know how I've engaged in it. And in my, in my relatively short time on the bench, I know how I want to see it be. Uh, and I know that I know that the system, uh, that, that it can work. And, and that's my goal, I'm sure, with the other judges as well. We, we want a judicial system that is fair and just and works. And um, it's my commitment to, while I'm a judge to do, and I'm, I'm sure all the other of my colleagues feel the same way. Judge Marshall Piccinetti from the Erie County Court of Common Pleas. Thank you, Marshall, for your time. And what a great conversation. Thanks, Joel, for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you, Shane and Bill. Take care. All righty. It is five in front of five here on Talk Erie. You've been listening to The Joel Natale Show, Erie, Pennsylvania's daily podcast from TalkErie.com. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcatcher and get involved by emailing joel at TalkErie.com. <laughs>